Investors Chronicle. Welcome to another episode of the Investors Chronicle Interviews podcast. Today, we are very pleased to have as our guest, Lord Lee of Trafford, an avid investor and the man widely deemed to be the UK's first ISO millionaire. He qualified as a chartered accountant, began his career by spending two years with a stockbroker before establishing a company specialising in M&A, which developed into an investment banking group. He was an MP between 1979 and 1992, and he's been a member of the House of Lords since 2006. In his role as a private investor, Lord Lee has written several hundred articles for FT Money and published two books on investment, How to Make a Million Slowly and Yummy Yogurt, A First Taste of Stock Market Investment. He's also a patron of ShareSock, the organization representing individual shareholders in the UK. Lord Lee, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. And a reader of Investors Chronic, if I may say so. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. Let's get straight into it. Let's talk about your approach to investing and, and how it all began, really. You know, lots of things have changed over the years, over the weeks and months, you know, as always happens is in, in investing. But to go all the way back to the beginning, how did you how did you start out in investing? How did you get interested? Uh, well, I suppose going right back, uh, we, we're probably talking about when I was probably, uh, I should have thought about 14. So that would be 1956. Um, when uh, my father, who, who was a doctor, um, he, he used to uh, enjoy the stock market and uh, uh, put his modest savings uh, into stocks and shares. And uh, I used to remember him uh, as sitting by a pile of stock exchange gazettes and investors chronicles, um, going through them diligently. Well, of course, uh, stock exchange gazette no longer appears, um, disappeared a long time ago, but the investors chronicle continues and um, indeed I looking forward to reading mine this this weekend uh, anyway I, I used to sort of pull his leg a little uh, at, at um, uh, him delving into these piles of magazines uh, and then I you know I just started to sort of flick in myself and um, uh, that's really when my original interest started uh, and we used to get a newsletter as well by a chap called beverage I think that came weekly or monthly I can't remember. Uh, which I suppose you'd regard today as a sort of a uh, slightly more sophisticated tip sheet. Uh, and then there used to be something called the IC Newsletter, which you got the Investors Chronicle Newsletter, which was around in those days. Um, anyway, I used to read read uh, this mix of publications. And uh, when I was 15, 16, uh, I bought my first share. Uh, I invested or something like £45 in a company called Aviation and Shipping, who owned one ship. Uh, unfortunately, the ship went down, and my uh, and my forty-five pounds went down to the bottom of the ocean with it. So it was not the most auspicious of starts. Um, but thankfully, things have improved a little bit over the years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on that note, let's let's uh, cycle forward. Uh, a little bit and talk about uh, ISIS in particular, and sure. you know your your path there. Uh, that, you know, ISIS began in 1999 uh, as the first ISA millionaire. I imagine you were very early investing in them. Yes, well, we but... have to go back a little back a little further, Dan, actually, to 1987 mm. when PEPs were introduced, which, of course, you know, really were the, the precursor to, to ISIS. Sure. Uh, and it was, I think, the Labour government, I think it was Gordon Brown, 
who, who um, changed the name uh, uh, and brought in ISIS, um, but to all intents and purposes, they were pretty well the same. Uh, so in 87, it was Nigel Lawson who brought in uh, PEPs. Uh, and I recognised um, fairly immediately that you know, here was a great investing opportunity um, with the, the, the tax-free aspect that um, uh, appertained at that time. Uh, but I've always chosen my own shares and never let anyone else do it for me. Uh, and so I wanted to try and find a plan manager who would allow me to choose my own shares. And in those early days, there were very few uh, PEPs plan managers. Uh, and those that did exist really wanted you to choose shares from a particular list, which didn't appeal yeah. to me. Anyway, in the end, I managed to find, um, and I don't know how I did, Midland Bank executor and trustee in Sheffield, and opened um, a PEPs plan with them. And uh, in 87 or 88, uh, invested for the first time the maximum amount, which was then £3,000. And I remember buying into a company called Pisco, um, which was a Manchester-based uh, electrical wholesaler and manufacturer. Uh, ultimately, they, they owned um, Russell Hobbs. Uh, and um, uh, for the first few years, I put in the maximum uh, amount that I that I could, uh, and also reinvested the dividends. Uh, and um, so for the first 15 years through to 2003, I think I invested probably a total of around £125,000. Uh, and the portfolio in 2003 um, was judged to be worth about a million pounds. So that's how I uh, became the first ISA millionaire, although um, whether I was, I don't really know. No one ever challenged me on that. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, that, that uh, tag uh, sticks, as it were. Yeah, uh, of course, you're right about the pets, you know, being the... Uh... Uh, the forerunner, and the reason I suppose I was interested in the 1999 year was uh, partly because that's when the name changed, but also because that was you know right before really we had a a tech bubble, a bit of a market drawdown. So you know how you know we've had various events since then, of course, that we might come on to. But thinking back to that time, so how did you uh, encounter that period? How did you deal with that period in your portfolio that had you know been growing through those years and still managed to reach a million in 2003? Well, we've had a series of, of uh, what I term uh, a left field or, or black swan events that um, have come along and, and hit me uh, during my investment life. In the early 1970s, before we started with, with PEPs, we had the secondary banking crisis when shares fell uh, and no one would buy and blue chips were yielding 20-odd percent. Uh, then I remember, you know, the, the secondary banking, um, not the secondary banking crisis, the subprime um, problems that we that we had in the early in the early two thousands, uh, and these events come along, uh, and that's why, of course, you know, there is always an element of risk in stock market investment, and you should never put all your funds into the stock market. You almost all you should always keep uh, a certain proportion out. Uh, but it's it's in difficult situations. Uh, it, it is when you have a bear market that the greatest opportunities do actually arise. Uh, assuming that um, you take the view that ultimately, you know, we will get through this difficult period. Uh, if you believe that the end of the world is nigh, that Armageddon is coming, uh, then I'm not sure what you do apart from maybe hide under the bed with a crate of whiskey and a bar of gold, or else climb the highest mountain and. Uh, 
and pray. Uh, so to be an investor, I think you have to be moderately optimistic uh, that there is a future. Uh, mm. And uh, there's a saying that I, I noted very recently, uh, which basically said that a bear market uh, is when you make your money, when you, when you make your profits, although you don't realize it at the time. Uh, in other words, yes. uh, you're, you're buying when prices are fairly low and uh, hopefully one does see a recovery. So uh, when we've had these difficult periods, uh, I've learned that it actually pays to, to buy uh, and to be pretty fully invested. And so today, for example, um, you know, with the stock market being relatively low and many small cap stocks of the type that I invest in really being um, uh, very cheap and having been substantially derated, um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, there are excellent buying opportunities. Yeah, I was about to mention the current moment, but uh, which we will come to very shortly. But perhaps before we do, as you say there, you are a, a traditionally or you are certainly known for buying and holding smaller companies and reinvesting dividends and what have you. Has that, has that always been your approach? Has that evolved over the as years? Far, as, far as, as far as I can remember, I, I, you know, I've never been a risk, a risk taker. Uh, and of course, the secret of stock market success is really to avoid the losses. Everyone uh, has has uh, successes and gets gets things right, but of course it's the uh, you know it's the it's the losses that drag down the overall portfolio. Uh, and I equate it to golf, for mm. example, where uh, you know you're, things are going very well until the seventeenth hole or the eighteenth hole, and when you hit the ball out of bounds or into the river, as it were, and so the the round and the card is ruined, as I know as I know full well. Um, so the key is to avoid the losses now. I try to avoid the losses uh, by, first of all, um, uh, going in or investing at a, a, a broad, broad brush at a certain level when uh, the company I'm invest investing in is already established, ideally is already profitable, and ideally also paying dividends. Uh, and I avoid startups, I avoid biotech stocks, I avoid exploration stocks, and I also avoid contracting businesses because they always hit bad contracts at some stage. Now, this is not to say that you can't make money from biotech stocks or exploration stocks, but they are they are for the specialist who focuses, uh, you know, in in that sector or on those sectors. Uh, and I'm much more of a general practitioner, so I tend to avoid those. So, so I'm endeavouring to come in. Um, when the business is more established, investing in what I term proper businesses, um, businesses that I think are established, sound, uh, have a board where hopefully there is uh, a significant uh, director shareholding, where there is not too much debt, uh, and where the company is paying the dividends. And um, over the years in my ISA, I have reinvested those dividends, and they've played obviously a very significant part in the buildup of the of the overall value of MyISA over the years. You, you talk about these, you know, established companies at the same time, obviously a lot of them, most of them are small caps still. So do you have a, a sort of a set level, whether it be in terms of market cap or in terms of turnover that qualifies as a company as established? I mean, it may depend on the, the sector, I'm sure, but do you look at set levels or is it a case-by-case -case basis? It's very much a case-by-case -case basis. Um, nothing is too small as far as I'm concerned, provided it's, it's established and, and yeah. broad, broadly satisfies my criteria. Uh, and also, uh, you know, I like 
companies where the the uh, the team running it have substantial investments in it, as it were, and and real shareholdings. So over the years, I've done very well in what I term proprietorial public companies, where essentially there is maybe family control or substantial family interest. Uh, and uh, those businesses normally are fairly carefully skewered by the generation of the family running the business, conscious of maiden aunts and similar who might have big shareholdings in the company but don't actually have an earned income. So the dividend is, is important to them. Uh, and while they want to move the business forward and expand it, um, they, they are conscious of the heritage and the business that they've inherited, and therefore you know, they don't take great risks uh, and, and endeavour to build those businesses uh, uh, you know, at a, a steady pace. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of good family businesses still in the, the UK market or businesses with the roots in, in that, that structure. You know, the small cap world it, it is a big world, though, as well. How, how do you go about finding the, these companies? Uh, do you have a method for that? Do you know, sometimes can it, I suppose it can be quite serendipitous, you know, as any investor would probably agree. You hear about something, it sounds interesting. You go from there. How do you, how do you yes, find Yes, well, that, that, I mean, that's true. There is no, there is no set route. I mean, obviously, over the years, having been investing, investing, you know, for over 60 years, um, uh, you know, I, I, I pretty well know of, of, uh, of every uh, quoted company on the main market, as it were, mm. uh, and heaven knows how many I've invested in over the years, uh, a huge number. Um, uh, as far as the AIM stocks are concerned, uh, where I have a number of holdings with the with the taxation, particular taxation benefits that, that come from them, um, uh, it's very difficult to keep up with a, a lot of the new uh, the new issues that took place in recent years. So um, I'm not as knowledgeable as, uh, of that market, but certainly uh, of the companies that have been around for a long time, I'm, I'm very much aware of them. So you know, I'd be tracking uh, companies through Bessers Chronicle, for example, through the City Pages. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I'm a member of uh, a breakfast investment group and a luncheon investment group and a dining investment group. Thankfully, they don't all meet on the same day. Otherwise, yeah. uh, otherwise I'd be uh, uh, even heavier than I am. Uh, and, uh, you know, ideas are, are exchanged and occasionally, you know, I pick up an interesting one, which I will follow up. But generally speaking, um, in more recent years, I've much preferred to build up the holdings that I've got, where I, I know the management and, and um, have faith in the company, rather than sort of jumping about and uh, over-broadening the portfolio, uh, and certainly not chopping and changing, because I believe that you only need two things for successful investment, common sense and patience. And patience is the most important, and that's the one that most people don't have. And particularly, of course, with the development of technologies, uh, and so you can have all your portfolio, you know, on your on your mobile phone or on your iPad or whatever it is, and press a button and you can see immediately if you're making a profit. The temptation is there to, you know, to take that profit, to move things. Uh, and that's precisely what you shouldn't do. Uh, and if I can put it crudely, um, there, there is a, uh, an American adage um, which, which uh, says, Basically, you make your money by sitting on your ass. In other words, you get into something good or company that you believe to be good and you stay with it. Yeah. And you hope that company will grow and dividends will increase and its capital value will increase. I believe that's the way to make real money on the on the stock market. And 
obviously, you know, I've had my successes, but I've also had my failures as well, as, as, as we all have. No one, no one gets it right uh, every time. Indeed. Uh, on the number of companies you hold then, were you implying there that, you know, that portfolio, your portfolio has become more concentrated a little bit over the years as you yeah, I would, focus? Yeah, I would, I, would, I would say so. I, I probably have, um, I don't know, it'd be difficult to say, probably um, uh, maybe less than 10, you know, really significant holdings. Uh, and then maybe another 10 medium-sized holdings and, and one or two smaller ones. And in more recent years... Uh, I, although I'm predominantly a small cap investor, I've also taken advantage uh, of the um, very, very attractive yields, in my view, um, exceptionally attractive yields, which are available uh, in the insurance sector, like legal and general yielding dividend yield about 8% and Aviva about 7.5% and M&G, um, which is yielding sort of 95 to 10%. And these are extraordinary uh, dividend yields, which I believe are, are um, maintainable. Uh, you know, indeed, with Legal and General and Aviva, they, they push the dividends forward each year. Um, and within an ISA, of course, um, those dividend yields tax-free really do mount up significantly. So my portfolio at the moment, the ISA portfolio, which is my main one, is really, um, I suppose, I've not worked out exactly, but it may be you know, two-thirds small cap and a third those large caps, which bring up the overall income. That brings us on to, you know, the, the market as it stands presently. We've touched on it a little bit already, of course. Uh, but in the, over the last 18 months, you know, in this environment of rising interest rates, of course, you've been in the market for several decades, but have there been things you've learned or things that you've been reminded of over the last 18 months in particular? You know, it's been a long time since we've been in a rising rate environment. How has that affected your thinking, if at all? Uh, what what does that remind you of in terms of good investment practice in this kind of market environment? Well, uh, you know, you, you talk about, uh, obviously we talk about inflation and we talk about rising interest rates now, but I mean, I remember uh, when, when you know, interest rates, debentures were coming out at uh, sort of 15% or so, mm. you know, go, going back into the, into the 70s. Um, I've always, frankly, um, tended to uh, avoid and not over-worry about the macro situation uh, unless you really believe that everything's coming to an end and you know as i've said i'm not sure what you do then anyway um you know i leave that i leave that to to economists uh, uh, i'm essentially focused on the individual companies uh, and their performance and of course yes obviously to an extent they're affected by the overall economy but on the other hand there are many small companies that that can that can survive and grow um, in, in, in niches in the overall global economy. Uh, and um, so, you know, one tries to, to find them. And I only invest in UK companies, um, but by and large, UK companies that actually trade globally. So I have the advantage, I like to think, of UK governance standards. Um, but at the same time, I hope those individual companies are... are you know, seizing the global opportunities, and uh, I'm sure they are recognizing that the great greater growth opportunities, um, you know, lie in in uh, developing markets overseas. And the, the UK market itself, you know, it, ha- it has been somewhat out of favour, albeit large caps less so last year and this year. You've t- spoken about the insurers a little bit, uh, you know, those large caps and those yields are looking relatively attractive to add to the small cap part of the portfolio. 
but given what's happened with small caps over you know the last couple of years now taking into account the fact that you say you know you're still sticking with your your main holdings that kind of thing are you nonetheless seeing more small cap opportunities spring up that do meet your criteria and that are you know interesting looking new investments yes i, I would say so i mean there's no doubt at all the market over the last two or three years has been quite challenging uh, and uh, pretty well everyone has has come down in value from the from their peak and and uh, you know my portfolios both my ISA the main one and and uh, the, the the sort of non ISA um, which is of smaller value you know they they've all they've all come down but uh, you know being very much a long term investor in almost all cases I'm staying aboard and and as long as they're 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 paying their dividend. Uh, which uh, in the vast majority of cases they are, and indeed um, in some cases, most cases or many cases, pushing dividends forward, as it were, I'm really quite happy. And, uh, you know, I've seen some quite significant dividend increases recently, for example, and uh, companies like Cerulean, which I've done very well, um, which is an AIM stock, um, put the dividend up 27%, and Christie Group, which is also an AIM stock, um, dividend up 25%. Uh, so uh, the dividend flow has really been extremely good for me, uh, even though there has obviously been been a drift in overall capital values. So, um, well, obviously one likes to see an overall higher capital value situation. But frankly, when you get to my sort of agent stage, the dividend flow is that much more important in a way uh, you know, because it, it sustained one's lifestyle, it means one can help the the family uh, and, uh, you know, pick, pick up the old school fee bill and similar uh, and uh, give a little to charity as well. Uh, so dividend income important and, and the long term capital value hopefully will take care of itself. And the other point I would make, and we've not touched on this, Dan, is that the whole pattern of, uh, of corporate activity post-war has been very much the the larger cap stock taking over the small cap stock. Uh, yes. Now you can argue the merits of whether you know that's been nationally in our in our overall interest, but the fact is that uh, when takeover bids do come along, uh, they usually come along at, at quite significant premiums to prevailing prices, uh, and uh, we're seeing that at the moment. I've been on the receiving end over the years of something like sixty takeovers or take privates, uh, almost all um, showing a, a, a profit on the then prevailing price. And I think also in many, most cases on my original buying price. So these, those takeovers that come along, of course, do provide liquidity for, you know, for the, the, the next round of, of investment opportunities. And so it goes on. So the combination of um, dividends retained and compounded within an ISA and takeovers from time to time has provided the liquidity to power the, the ISA forward. Just on the, uh, that point about takeovers, you know, as you say, we have seen a lot, uh, certainly over the years and, and certainly the last couple of years as well. Do you have a general sense of how those bids are? You know, it's, it's very hard to generalise, I appreciate, but, you know, the, there's some suggestion that, you know, given the lowly rankings in the UK market, that some of these bids are a little opportunistic. It can be hard for a private investor, of course, to push back against that, given shareholding sizes. But how do you do you have a sense of the, you know, the general type of bid coming in and whether it affords the company the respect, perhaps, that it deserves? 
Well, at the, at the, at the moment, um, you know, there are a very substantial number of small public company um, you know, directors and chief executives who are tearing their hair out at the, at the low levels of, uh, uh, of their shares. Uh, and in many cases, most cases, I concur with them. So um, you can argue that bids are opportunistic. And, uh, you know, I know fund managers, for example, who, uh, who have been approached to see whether they would sell holdings at a, you know, 25, 30% premium to prevailing prices. And they've told the potential bidder to go away. They're not interested in selling out at that sort of level. So, in fact, we haven't seen recently as many uh, as many bids as probably one would have anticipated. I think this is part of the part, partly the problem of raising um, of raising debt finance to actually mm. finance a number of these um, uh, uh, of these uh, takeovers. But um, you know, I've invested in, in many small caps, often built up or controlled by an individual who reaches a certain stage where where he or she um, really reach an age where they want to capitalize on the, the business they've created uh, and therefore uh, you know they're looking to be to be uh, absorbed or taken over uh, uh, but of course at the at the right price what we're seeing at the moment and I've had two very recent examples of this with with engineering company Goodwins who are based in Stoke-on-Trent and more recently in with Amparo in uh, natural stimulants for animal growth both those companies, which are relatively cash-rich, have actually uh, announced tender offers uh, at uh, higher prices to try and tempt weaker holders out. Uh, and in both cases, um, that actually has brought a, um, a just a something of a bounce in, in, in share prices. So uh, I think we're going to see quite a number of, uh, of tenders by companies to buy shares back and, and uh, board, with boards taking advantage of the, the low level of the market. Mm. Let's turn now to private investing in general in the UK. Uh, from your point of view, you know, perhaps with your share sock hat on, you know, what what more should be done to facilitate and encourage private investing? You know, you're, you're obviously a testament to the uh, the successes that that can be achieved through it, but there's plenty of people, you know, who perhaps are a little bit reticent to get involved, or you know, have had their heads turned by other asset classes or cryptocurrency things like that. You know, from your point of view, what what do you think are the, are the big things perhaps that are missing from, you know, the promotion of the 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 use of private investing in the UK? Well, I think that um, uh, firstly, going right back, I think to to you know early days, uh, I think the financial education in schools has been lamentable. Quite honestly, it's marginally improving. Uh, but uh, there's been so little and so many young people leave school with, with so little knowledge, let alone of investment, but hardly any knowledge of, of budgeting or mortgages or deposits for houses or flats. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, the, the education stage one has been very, very disappointing. Uh, there's no doubt about, um, about that. And, of course, uh, we should all be, and governments particularly, should be very concerned that now there are more young people who speculate, and I use the word speculate rather than invest, speculate in, in cryptocurrencies than actually invest in more traditional forms of investment. Um, so we haven't done a great job as a, as a nation. 
Now, I think that both individual investors can be blamed to some extent, uh, and also the companies bear a degree of responsibility, because I think that too many private investors are reluctant to approach companies to pick up the phone to try to talk to the finance director or the company secretary if they've got questions about the particular business um, uh, or, or go along to the annual general meetings uh, to actually meet the board in person. They're not really prepared to, many, many cases, to make the effort. Uh, and on the other hand, the companies themselves, in, in my judgment, and this is obviously a, a, you know, a broad brush comment, um, make very little effort to really um, build bridges with with shareholders, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, then another major factor, in my view, has been the total failure. Or I would say yes, total failure of television, which has really been the dominant media into most people's houses, particularly those with with money, um, uh, slightly older people over the years. Total failure of television to. Um, uh, to promote UK companies, to talk about the the successful UK companies, we've got some many outstanding companies uh, to talk about and promote. Uh, there's been no focus on on investment opportunities, um, on on how to invest. There's been a total failure of of, uh, of television, and it's a combination of. Uh, in my judgment, excessive regulation uh, and reluctance of, of um, producers, for whatever reason, to actually uh, uh, focus uh, in this in this area, and I think it's a, a tragic loss uh, to the nation and indeed to 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 many investors. And we saw, for example, in recent years, uh, people with cash in the bank, many people with cash in the bank, earning virtually no interest at all on their on their monies on their deposits and yet they could have invested in in you know very solid uk companies um paying you know three four five percent uh let alone the the you know the, the seven eight percent that i was talking about earlier uh when was when one was looking at the uh, at the insurance sector um so companies i think could do a lot more um you know uh, for for example uh, I was debating uh, recently with with the Archie Norman of MNS, um, and he was uh, talking about building bridges with shareholders. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if uh, Marks and Spencer really want to build bridges with their shareholders, why don't why don't they in introduce a shareholders discount card? I mean, they after all uh, have a, a normal shoppers card, and I've got one of those. I'm never quite sure what benefits they get from it, but you could easily have a shareholders discount card offering, say, 1%, uh, a 1% discount, a very small discount, I agree, but one that nevertheless would would uh, would encourage people to to shop there and, and do more. And then uh, you could have a series of uh, regional meetings and, or, you know, retail groups could do this meeting in, you know, one of their stores, M&S or Next or, or whatever, um, you know, in an early evening and give shareholders who attend, uh, you know, a, a small voucher, 15, 20, 25 pound voucher, as it were, to spend. You could do, you could do so much more if there's, if there's a will. And, but in my judgment, too many directors pay lip service to, to, uh, uh, to, to um, uh, build, endeavouring to build bridges with shareholders. And they forget that at the end of the day, it, it's the shareholders who own the company.
I mean, they're there as stewards and obviously very important stewards for the period that they're on the board or running the businesses. But at the end of the day, you know, the businesses are owned by us. Uh, and uh, I think too many boards, frankly, forget that and regard the AGM as a bit of a chore. Anything, if they can get away with having it at an inconvenient time in the city office and only three people come along, well, so be it, as it were. Um, they think it's a bit of a waste of time. And it probably is that they only managed to get two or three people there. And then, of course, we've got this ridiculous annual report um, that now comes out so th that in the case of some larger companies runs to, you know, 270 or 280 pages, page after page of, of um, you know, so-called risks that the business has and all about LTIPs and how many board meetings individual directors attended. Uh, you know, I think, I think sadly, uh, and I suppose I wear a little bit of a political hat as well, uh, not necessarily party political, but, uh, you know, I, I just think that we, we have now in this country, uh, and of course, there's the need to protect investors, although scandals still seem to, to appear. Um, I think we are excessively regulated, and I think the regulation has... Uh, stunted a lot of free enterprise and uh, market economy uh, and certainly it's had a negative effect on encouraging people to invest their savings in in uh, uk companies you, you raise a lot of interesting points there and i think certainly in terms of the communication between companies and investors does leave a lot to be desired and you know agm season shows that i think again this year which which we've covered in our pages and on, on the regulation point i mean uh, this is a slightly different regulatory point, but there have been some moves recently to try and increase the attractiveness of the London market, both to all kinds of investors, but also to try and make things in life a little bit better for, for private investors. I mean, do you have an opinion on some of those proposed reforms? I'm thinking of uh, things like, you know, increasing retail investor participation in secondary issues, things like that. I mean, it's all good news on the surface, but is it enough in your opinion? I think it, well, I think it helps. And, uh, you know, we've seen the development of companies like Primary Bid, for example, which, which you know, sets out and achieves to, to uh, enable the private investor um, to, um, you know, to, to uh, participate. I think there is a, a tendency sometimes for companies and, and for the regulators to, to focus too much on, on you know, on the, the needs of, of institutions and boards spend time with institutions and less thought is given to the private investor. And we, we, we've really seen, you know, although there are a lot of private investors in the country, there could be a lot more. And I come back to my earlier point, you know, when we've got uh, the last figure I thought I saw, I think was about 5 million young people predominantly speculating in cryptocurrencies where really, you know, it's, 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 it's absolute gambling. They know next to nothing about it. You know, I think it's I think it's very sad to see, and I, I think a substantial change is needed, and and I think we do have to lift regulations to some extent from from uh, you know from uh, people's and companies' backs. I suppose you know, given the the talk about the London market and the need or the the consciousness of the need for a, a solid domestic investor base, perhaps that will encourage people to take more, uh, pay more attention to the private investor as well as. You know, episodes like we've seen the last couple of years in the US, the power of those investors working together, albeit in some unusual situations. All this taken in sum, though, um, how do you feel about, you know, the role of the private investor now? Do you think they're in a better place than they were, you know, 
10, 20, 30 years ago. On the one hand, there are a lot of these issues and problems which are perhaps going in the wrong direction. On the other hand, it is easier for investors to access information and to invest the right way if they want to do that. Is it possible to sort of weigh up the pros and cons of being well, a I think, I think I think things have improved in, in two aspects, really. Um, first of all, uh, as you rightly say, there, there is much more information available uh, on the on the web, um, uh, you know, on individual companies. All all PLCs, pretty much all PLCs, have a have a website that gives information. Um, you know, regulatory news comes out seven o'clock in the morning. You know, I always, I was personally uh, look to see um, you know who, who what companies have announced um uh, early morning um you know, and obviously particularly interested in any of the companies that i'm invested in so i think um the ability to access knowledge uh, is greater probably than it ever uh, it ever has been uh and that's a plus um and then of course we've had the development of in, in over more recent years of platforms uh, like uh, you know the the interactive investor and Hargreaves Lansdowne and AJ Bell and people like that, where investors who who don't want to uh, take their own decisions and don't feel that um, you know they've got the the, the time, um, then they they should go there and and obviously let fund managers invest on their behalf. Personally, I've always tried to encourage people to take their own decisions, uh, and uh, I think you, your average person. If they if they find the whole stock market of interest and apply common sense, will do. Uh, frankly, over the years, probably as well as most fund managers would do, and it's somewhat cheaper as well and more fun taking your own decisions. Indeed, indeed. How do you feel about those platforms? And you know, do you have experience of using various different investment platforms? And do you feel they provide a good base for investors, or could they be doing more as well to to help the private investor experience? It's very difficult to know. I mean, I think they they uh, they fulfil their role. I personally don't use them at all uh, because mm. I operate very much taking my you know taking my own decisions as a traditional private investor, and I make my own arrangements in terms of visiting companies and endeavouring to uh, meet up and talk to uh, chief executives or finance directors of companies. Over the years, um, you know, I build up a you know a relationship and awareness of the company that I'm investing in, and uh, to some extent, of course, I, I suppose that can be slightly negative from an investment point of view because you, you know, you 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 stay aboard a company for many years, and and uh, you feel that um, you know you're a bit of a heel if you if you sell and uh, uh, and wave that company farewell. So I think you know I could be accused probably of being a little too loyal. To one or two of the laggards, but um, there we are. Overall, you know, I enjoy that relationship with with the companies I invest in, uh, and um, you know, I think I hope most of them quite like having me as an investor. But uh, who knows? Unfortunately, we are running quite short of time. But I wanted to to finish on a couple of broad thoughts of looking back. First of all, the the uh, you know, it's a popular question. It's a difficult one to answer, perhaps. But, you know, do you have in mind when you think back about your investments, uh, a best and a worst investment in terms of how well they did or whether they surprised you for better, for worse or, you know, something that happened along those lines? You always get surprises. Uh, and sometimes you can anticipate and other times you can't. I mean, currently, for example, I'm invested in a company called Videndum, uh, the old Vitek business, who who provide 
um, it's high quality company uh, providing all sorts of ancillary equipment for for cameras and for the content creation sector and the company was you know was was steaming along well positioned uh, big growth in in streaming and uh, developed a new studios and then all of a sudden uh, you know we along comes something called the Hollywood writers strike now i mean i was never aware that there was an association of hollywood writers uh, who from time to time went on strike anyway thousands of them have gone on strike so all the uh, streaming and productions in in uh, Hollywood and Los Angeles and what have you have come to a shuddering halt, and obviously, you know that's had, had a negative effect, uh, certainly short term, on uh, uh, on Videndum. Now, you know, should I have been aware that there was a body called the Hollywood Writers? I suppose possibly I should, but uh, you know, what 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 isn't? But in terms of looking back, I mean, one of my uh, greatest successes has probably been with a company called Treat, T-R-E-A-T-T, which is my largest holding, and I've been a shareholder uh, since about 1999, uh, and it's done me proud over the years, and a lot of the shares have come off, um, well, it's probably halved, there's been quite a substantial G-rating, you know, I'm still showing a very very handsome profit, Uh, and, you know, it's a company in flavours and fragrances, it's quite a unique PLC, and um, you know, I think it has a very considerable long-term future. So I'm staying aboard. Looking back at you know one or two of them that have gone wrong, I remember being seduced by the high yield that HMV, if you recall, was offering, mm-hmm. uh, and then there was a complete collapse in the market for traditional vinyl records. Uh, and the sale of cassettes, and they got in a real mess. Um, well, recent, more recent, of course, there's been a resurgence in, in vinyl records. Indeed. But, but uh, you know, I lost money at that stage. And then the, before that, I remember uh, there were three distributors of newsprint and uh, magazines in the country, Smith's News, Menges, and Dawson's, obviously reliant on contracts from the printers and publishers. And anyway, there was a particular round when all the contracts went to Smith's News and to um, Menges, and poor old Dawson's got next to nothing. The business uh, that was there pretty well disappeared to all intents and purposes. So, you know, we've all had our our, uh, our failures, but of course, as I said earlier, the trick is to have more, far more successes than failures. Uh, and fortunately, in more recent years, I think I've managed to uh, to achieve that. Absolutely. Uh, on the on the subject of the written word, uh, a lot of our listeners, I hope, like reading about investment as well. So as a final question, are there investment books or tomes other than your own that have, have helped you along the way or that you sort of recommend to people? Well, well you, can't, you, you, can't, you kindly mentioned mine and I won't repeat them. I think it would be, uh, it would be taking advantage. I, no, I wouldn't say I've read too many investment books. I do. I do read uh, what I said earlier. You know, I do read. I've always read the you know the Investors Chronicle, uh, and uh, you know I enjoy uh, the City columns of, of um, you know most uh, most papers, uh, and um, you know endeavour to keep up to date. Um, uh, you know by that um, uh, by that fairly light reading, I would say, and then obviously if a particular company uh, is of interest or appeals. Then I can dig further uh, into that particular uh, into that particular business, but I don't spend hours wading through great tomes on investment, uh, you know, written by people who, in many cases, are you know are, are rather long on theory and short on success. Mm. 
the IC will suffice. Um, unsurprisingly, I feel that is a good uh, good place to end. But uh, Lord Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. I really appreciate it. And it's been great to hear from you and learn from uh, your thoughts over the years. We hope you can join us again next time with another Investors Chronicle interview.